First, though, taking a look at what's happening in long-term care facilities, we know that people living in long-term care have been vaccinated. In many cases, people have been given both doses of the vaccine. But we also heard about a new outbreak. This is a COVID-19 outbreak. It was declared on Sunday at the Cottonwoods Care Centre in Kelowna, even though the majority of the residents there have been vaccinated. Dr. Bonnie Henry talked about this, saying we knew this was a possibility because it takes some time for for the vaccination to really work and to make sure you are protected from COVID-19. So what does this mean for people living in long-term care? We are joined now by Terry Lake, who is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, it's, I, I think it came as a surprise to people just hearing the fact that there, were, uh, there was an outbreak declared involving two staff members, 10 residents, uh, all testing positive for the virus, even though uh, many of the people involved have been vaccinated. But uh, on the other hand, uh, we did hear from Dr. Henry saying this can still happen. What are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, uh, on a personal level, it was a, a close call. Uh, my, my dad was in a hospital in Kelowna for a week and was uh, thought to be transitioning over to uh, Cottonwoods, uh, but he, he did so well that he went directly home. So on a personal level, it's a, a close call. But as Dr. Henry said, uh, these vaccines, while they're very good, they're not 100% effective. And, you know, there's no requirement for all uh, staff to be vaccinated. So it just shows that we can't let our guard down, that we need to continue to have good infection prevention and control practices, uh, good screening practices, and, um, you know, just be wary that that not everyone is going to have 100% immunity uh, because of the vaccine. Uh, When you say there's no requirement uh, for staff, is there a requirement then for people, residents, to have the vaccine? No, there isn't. Um, You know, there is no mandatory vaccination policy this is something that's a, a bit of a concern for providers of, um, of long-term care and assisted living because, you know, it, it does create a gap. And while we saw yesterday, uh, finally, uh, the rollout or at least the announced um, intention to roll out a point-of-care rapid testing program, you know, we still have holes in in the, uh, the screening protocols that uh, would help keep COVID out of long-term care and assisted living. Uh, what is it like then as far as are people letting their guard down thinking that the vaccinations have been administered uh, so we don't have to do as much as far as masking or distancing and that do you think that's an issue as well i don't think it's an issue yet i mean i think it's a human uh, tendency to relax a little bit you know finally after one year when when the vaccine uh, arrived uh, there may be, uh, you know, just a, a, a tendency to want to do that. But people who work in these uh, type of environments are very well trained and they know just how susceptible residents are. So, um, I, you know, I have not heard of, of uh, in, in practical ways that people have let their guard down. But certainly you would expect that that may happen. And it's just a reminder that we need to uh, to ensure that it is not, uh, in fact, happening. And that's talking to staff, you know, the, the daily uh, meetings that uh, staff have in long-term care and assisted living to make sure that they're reminded of the importance of infection prevention and control practices.
Uh, and when we're talking about the, the vaccination as well, we've talked a lot about the fact that, uh, like you said, not all the, the vaccine isn't 100%. Uh, the people living in long-term care are getting the vaccine with higher efficacy. Uh, but is there a, a thought process then, or, or are you seeing that even then, if we see an outbreak like this, or if we, we do see people are exposed to COVID-19, even if they do get the disease, is it safe to say, or are we seeing that the, the, the disease itself isn't as bad? If you've been vaccinated, but you still get it, is it a, a lesser, uh, a less intense sickness? Well, that's what the evidence seems to indicate that, you know, even if you were to test positive for COVID-19 after vaccination, that it would be a milder form. Uh, but, you know, I know of at least one case in which a resident was vaccinated for their first dose, contracted the virus and passed away uh, three weeks later. So there's always going to be some concern that some people are just more susceptible. Um, you know, their pre-existing conditions make them very vulnerable. Uh, so, again, it's just, you know, we have to be so, so careful with this population. Um, but I do believe that we can make these environments safe with the protocols that are in place, with rapid testing that soon will be available, uh, because it's super important to be able to reunite families once again, Jill. It's been over a year, and, you know, we're seeing many, many articles uh, from the New York Times, to the Globe and Mail, to the Vancouver Sun and other outlets that, People are, are suffering from not being connected to their families, uh, and we really need to, uh, to change that soon. Uh, you, you talked about rapid testing. How, how much will things change, do you think, if we get to a scenario uh, where we are looking at a lot of people in long-term care having been vaccinated, both residents and staff members, with the addition of rapid testing? Well, it's just one more layer of protection. And, you know, modeling from Simon Fraser University indicated that if we had uh, rapid testing as part of our screening protocol, you know, starting in uh, in November and December, uh, we could have prevented uh, many of the outbreaks that occurred and, and saved, uh, you know, a considerable number of lives. So, um, again, I think rapid testing, even though the, the, some people may feel the need is uh, less now with the vaccine, I believe that long-term point-of-care testing will become just a, a reality of, uh, of seniors' care because we've got influenza every year, we've got respiratory syncytial virus, and now you know COVID isn't going to go away completely despite the vaccination. So I think we need to get used to those protocols of using rapid testing as, uh, as part of our screening tools in long-term care. And you mentioned visitors, and we have been told that visitation as well is going to be increasing or there's going to be that opportunity. Do you have an idea on a timeline or when families might be able to have more than one essential visitor and really open that up? Well, we've really been trying to convey to the, the ministry that, uh, you know, with spring coming, wouldn't that be the perfect opportunity uh, to renew uh, uh, families again and, and reunite families? So, you know, obviously we can't be uh, married to a particular date. We have to do it when it makes sense. Uh, but uh, it's encouraging to hear Dr. Henry talk about, uh, you know, towards the end of this month, which would be, you know, the start of spring, that we could bring families together again. All right. We'll leave it there. Terry Lake, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Well, take a listen to this. This is from a call that came into our buzz line. Sorry, I really need to get that that inoculation. 
uh, at 92, I'm not likely to be around that long. That is Doreen Stone. She called to voice her frustration. She was trying to book a COVID-19 vaccine appointment from her home on Vancouver Island. Started calling yesterday at 7 a.m., started calling today at 7 a.m. We wanted to know if anything has changed. So we've got Doreen Stone on the line now. And Doreen, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Uh, Tell us what happened when you called that number to book your appointment. Um, I just got the same recorded message over and over again, uh, ultimately saying that uh, our lines were plugged up and we're called again, you know, and um, not in those words, but that was the meaning. Um, And so I did on and off all day. And um, I'm not surprised, except that I'm a little worried that if this keeps going, um, by the time the 15th rolls around, the next age group will be able to be starting in, and my my chances of getting through will be nil. <laughs> so because I don't sit there and just keep dialing, I just dial every once in a while when I'm finished doing a job. Right. And you started dialing. Did you start as soon as the phone lines opened? Yes, I started right at seven o'clock. After all, I'm awake early. And um, and this morning I I started it, I, I it was two minutes to seven and they said we're closed so I waited until the clock hit seven and then I dialed and they were again overloaded. That's got to be frustrating knowing that after living this way for more than a year it's your turn and to to get that vaccine and you can't get through. Yeah, it, it is a little, but I mean. Um, I don't go out. I'm, I mean, I'm not in much danger of catching the, the virus. So um, that, that part doesn't really bother me. It's just that I'm supposed to be getting it, and then I will be able to see my kids. And, you know, that would be nice. Yeah. How long has it been since you've been able to see your, your children, your grandchildren, and be with your family? Oh, well over a year. I haven't been into a store since a year ago in March when it first started. And my daughter does all the shopping, but she, I feel that she's the one that should be getting the shot. If she gets something, we all get it. Her husband and me, right. we're both vulnerable. Hmm. And it sounds like, like you said, you haven't been in a store and, and you're not going out all that much, but it sounds like you're, you're still very much, uh, I mean, you're, you're living at home, you've got your garden and that you're still, uh, you've still got things to do and you're still very active. Oh, yes. Yes, I have, and I am very active. So I'm, you know, if I I can go out for a little walk, my legs don't let me go for more than a block or so, but um, the rest of me is good. <laughs> my upper arm is good. <laughs> and, and so I managed to do a lot of weeding, and, and I keep the gardens around here. We've got acreage, so it's not that I'm in an apartment or anything. I'm outside. Uh, you're With the in, horses. Oh, nice. Uh, you're, you're in the Island Health Authority. So were, were you surprised yeah. at how difficult it is to get through uh, in, in one of the, not to one of the largest health authorities, but are you surprised that, that just how busy it is and how you're unable to get through on the phone? Yes. And particularly first thing, you know, um, how could it be overloaded right on the dot of seven? But anyway, that doesn't matter. They've I understand there's people who are just got some sort of a dial that they just let it go and go and go and I don't know we didn't we did get a 
I understand from the news that we did get uh, a few hundred people. Um, but seems to me as though in a day you should have got a heck of a lot more. Yeah, Particularly when you can't get through in the lines. Yeah, especially, yeah, exactly. If you can't get through, uh, and there's clearly a lot of people like yourself who still are trying and want to get through and make that appointment. Yeah. So, anyway, you can't get the serum unless you get an appointment. So, um, we'll just wait and see. You just keep trying. And and I know we touched on this, but <laughs> if there was a, another option, say a, a website or a web portal, would that help you at all? Uh, only as much as my daughter would have to do it, and right. that would that would be fine. She would do it, but um, I can't ask her to sit on the telephone uh, or do anything like that. But if she had a website, she could she could make an appointment for me. All right. So, what are you going to do then, as far as uh, still try? I guess keep trying and hopefully get through before the next age group opens up. Yep, that's all I can do. Yeah, that'll be it. I, I just wanted to ask you quickly, when you called our buzz line as well, you talked about your age and said, uh, you know, and, and I could sense the, the frustration in your voice in there uh, saying you're 92. And, and I mean, nobody knows how much time we have left, but you made a point of saying this is, you know, time is very important here. It, it does. When you get to be that age, it does become important. And it never was before. But now I would really like to see my great grandchildren. Um, they're growing up. And uh, my little, my oldest little one is ten, or she's coming up for ten. And it was I haven't seen her for a long time. <laughs> so, uh, and there's three other little boys too that I haven't seen, and they're they're only just across in Vancouver, you know. But the ferry is also another stumbling block. Although they do let you stay in your car now, mm. so your your chances of catching anything, as far as my catching anything is concerned is very unlikely. Right. So as long if my daughter could get her shot, which she can't get for a long time, that would keep us safe. But uh, uh, well, we just wait and see what happens. All right. Well, Doreen, let us know uh, if you're able to get through and get the appointment. Uh, good luck on the phones today, and thanks again so much for chatting with us. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being with us on the program today. Well, four years after the death of a man in an avalanche near Whistler, one of the world's largest makers of avalanche beacons has issued a voluntary recall for one specific line of their products. This is something my next guest has been calling for, actually calling for more than this uh, since the death of her husband. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Brianne Howard, who is the widow of Corey Lanham, who is the man who died in that avalanche. Brianne, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, can you uh, back the story up a little bit and talk about uh, when this happened and, and what happened to your husband? Of course. So um, on March 4th, 2017, uh, my husband set out with five other backcountry skiers that morning uh, to the Hanging Lake area uh, in the Whistler backcountry. And um, they, you know, were all uh, very trained backcountry skiers. Um, my husband put, you know, an average of 20 plus uh, days in the backcountry a year. Um, and they set out. And um, for some reason, an avalanche was triggered while he was skiing um, down the run and he was caught in it. 
Um, unfortunately, uh, they could not find him. It took uh, just over four hours to locate his body. Um, and when they did find him, of course, he had uh, he had already passed. He, and as you said, he was very experienced uh, skiing, being in, in the mountains, and he was wearing an avalanche beacon. Yeah, so he was wearing the Peeps uh, DSP avalanche beacon. Um, and it, you know, I initially found out about the avalanche. Um, I was contacted by one of the other skiers, uh, wives who'd received a, um, an in-reach message um, you know, a text message came through that there had been an avalanche and Corey was missing. And, you know, my immediate reaction, I would say, was how is he missing? He's wearing an avalanche beacon. Um, why, you know, why can they not find him? That's exactly what that is designed for. Um, I had assumed that, you know, it had maybe broken in the avalanche or something else had happened to it. Um, but never did I imagine that it just malfunctioned the way it did. Um, which ultimately I think is a, a design flaw of the beacon, which allows for the slider to switch easily um, under very minimal pressure between uh, transmit and receive signal, um, which was the case um, in his accident. So before he set off um, skiing that day, um, they did a beacon check in the parking lot, as they always do, um, to make sure you know it was in working order and it was in the right mode and they did that again at the top uh, before skiing down and so something happened in the avalanche that uh, that it switched modes which you would think of if anything is going to be able to stand up to impact it should be an avalanche beacon because that's what it appears i mean that's what it's supposed to do uh, to to save lives yeah, and, and, and exactly to, uh, this i know you started researching this and calling on the company to do something and then uh, from what i understand uh, another similar situation happened yeah, so I, um, when I started looking into this, I found reports online, so different reviews of the beacon. Um, I would just see, you know, reviewers on websites of people saying, yeah, it's a great beacon, but I noticed that the slider moves easily or, um, you know, it went into the wrong mode when I was, you know, hit my pocket accidentally uh, while skiing. And that was very alarming because this device, um, you know, is supposed to save your life. And when you're caught in an avalanche, it's a race against time and it quickly becomes a body recovery, um, you know, if you're not located very quickly, um, which is what the device is designed for. Um, so I appealed to Black Diamond to recall um, because of the obvious design flaw um, and uh, wasn't met with a lot of positive reception. You know, it was our, our testing is rigorous and um, it meets all safety requirements. But here we have a case study where it didn't. Uh, it failed in the conditions it was designed for. And then in 2020, um, a, a professional skier, Nick McNutt, um, was in a similar situation. He was caught in an avalanche and, um, you know, the same thing happened as did in Corey's accident where the beacon switched modes. Um, thankfully, he was, uh, they were, you know, part of a, a they were filming for a, a ski film at the time. And so there was a whole crew waiting. Um, you know, they had snowmobiles, they had eyes on him, they knew where he went under and could locate him very quickly and ultimately save his life. Um, that wasn't the case in my husband's accident. You know, he wasn't with uh, that same uh, number of people um, with eyes on him. And I think, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, the average, average backcountry skier wouldn't have that 
uh, that luck. And so it, it, you know, really problematic that we have two, two situations now with avalanches um, and two people being buried and the beacons failing um, to perform in the conditions that they were designed for. Uh, we now know that, that Black Diamond, which is the company that makes the Peeps DSP Beacon, they've issued a voluntary recall, and I understand they're offering up users of this a harder case to make sure it doesn't switch modes. Do you think that goes far enough? I don't. I think the challenge is that they haven't admitted that there is a problem. Um, so the introduction of this case is to prevent it from doing what we've been saying it does all along, it, it, you know, this, this slider malfunctions. Um, I also think that uh, one of the challenges is the coroner submitted a report and recommendations to Peeps and Black Diamond calling into question their actual testing um, and of the safety equipment. And so this, um, the safety testing that happens for avalanche transceivers is it's called a drop test where the beacon is dropped six times onto a hard wooden surface. Um, I don't think that reflects the complexities of an avalanche and the conditions uh, that a person would be faced with uh, in, in those real scenarios. And so I think that the, the test itself um, should be called into question um, and the beacon you know, should be fully recalled versus this hard case fix. Right, because it also is going to come down to if people happen to hear you on this radio station, I know you talked to Global News as well, if they saw that story, if they know about uh, the McNutt case, uh, because from what I understand, the, this we know it's a voluntary recall, but somebody could walk into a store and purchase one of these beacons and have no idea that there's even been an issue. Absolutely. And I think that this is, it's a huge problem. Um, the initial recall or product correction was announced on Instagram. Um, it was announced on Instagram on the Peeps site, um, as well as on the Black Diamond Snow site. Um, it's now on the Peeps website. Uh, it's still not on Black Diamond's website, as far as I know. Um, and, you know, so what do you do if you're not on social media, if you haven't seen the reports? Um, I, I think it just it needs to be wider uh, acknowledged that this is a real problem and it needs to be uh, further communicated um, I think one, I was really frustrated when I saw the post on Instagram and someone had actually remarked, you know, what about production and sales of this beacon? And Black Diamond replied that they would be stopping production of this beacon and sales. Um, so that's buried in an Instagram comment. You know, it's one of hundreds of comments. I think, I think that the way that the communications are being handled is, is really challenging um, and it's, it's discouraging. Right, because if they're on the one hand saying we're going to stop the production and sales of this, that obviously they know there's an issue with it, but why not be more out front and making sure people know that? Exactly, and I think if they're going to stop production, if they're going to stop sales, and they're going to have this hard case fix for an obvious problem that they're still not admitting is a problem, why not just recall the beacon altogether so that there are no more of them out there and we're not relying on someone you know taking this voluntary recall um, and, and hearing about it and knowing about it so that they can actually um, actually pursue this hard case. Right. And I mean, it comes down to uh, you, uh, you, you lost your husband and, and I would imagine you would like to stop that from happening to anybody else. 
Exactly. I don't want anyone else to suffer what we went through. I had a now five-year-old, but he was 17 months old at the time, and it was horrific. And I, I don't want that to ever happen to anyone else. And it's, it's something that, you know, I've been fighting for because this is a preventable. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I had hoped that they would take it seriously um, and see the design flaw and, and want to make a change. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And the other thing I'll point out is that, you know, anytime there's an avalanche, you then are putting other people at risk. So safety, crews, uh, rescue, uh, you know, first responders, other skiers who are in the area or who are with the party who are helping out. They're in now avalanche terrain or known avalanche terrain. Um, and you're putting their lives at risk as well. Yeah. Well, Brianne, thank you so much for talking about this and for speaking out and for keeping this uh, in the headlines and so that people do know about it. Uh, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks again so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Take that, care. You too. That is Brianne Howard fighting uh, for more measures to be taken by that company, Black Diamond, which makes the Peeps Beacon, which is an avalanche beacon. Her husband passed away in uh, a few years ago now after being caught in an avalanche and that beacon not working. We are going to take a short break. Stick with us here on CKNW. Thanks so much for being with us. Every time I see the number when it comes to the amount of produce that we sell, we throw away every year, whether it's American retailers, Canadian retailers, I'm always surprised. And I guess I shouldn't be uh, because we know that selling that so-called imperfect produce, fruit and veg can be difficult. Would it be better if we just called it as it is, saying that it is not so much imperfect, it's downright ugly. Well, my next guest is a PhD student at the UBC Souter School of Business and Siddhanth Mukherjee joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I just found this a really interesting study, taking a look at, at marketing and, and what people will purchase. Do they want the ugly truth about this or do they want something else? What were you actually looking at when we're talking about so-called uh, uh, cosmetic imperfections or imperfect fruit and veg? Yeah, we were uh, mainly interested in two research questions. Uh, the first one being, why do consumers reject unattractive produce? Now, what we mean by unattractive produce is, of course, perfectly edible, perfectly safe, but they look a bit weird. They look a bit odd shaped. They're kind of <laughs> uh, funky looking. So uh, the idea is that uh, we wanted to encourage people to purchase uh, such unattractive produce because, as you may know, that unattractive produce gets uh, wasted and it contributes, uh, it contributes to food waste. And so what we found was that emphasizing the aesthetic flaw of unattractive produce, so calling it ugly, actually increases the purchase of unattractive produce. And, and this is, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just wondering, it's, it, do you know why? Yeah, uh, so the reason is because uh, ugly labeling, so basically what happens is that uh, consumers make these negative inferences regarding unattractive produce. When they see these produce, they use the appearance as a basis to judge attributes uh, associated with the produce. So they, they think it's less tasty and less healthy than attractive produce. And so what ugly labeling does is that it corrects for these negative attitudes because it kind of it effectively de-biases the consumer, right? Because it's pointing to the source of the bias or it's pointing to the source of the rejection. And it's basically saying that, look, you're using appearance as a basis to judge the produce. So you're using the ugliness as a way to judge the 
the attributes of a produce. And so people might reevaluate that line of thinking. They might be like, oh, wait a second, I probably shouldn't use appearance as a basis uh, to judge uh, the produce. And that's why it's so correct for these negative attitudes regarding uh, taste and health, and therefore it increases the purchase of unattractive produce. And to be clear, we're talking about things like imperfections. Carrots can often look a little gnarly. Potatoes can look that way. We're not talking about, say, lettuce that has turned or has gone bad. We're still talking about very edible and fresh produce. Yes, correct. Perfectly edible, perfectly safe, but just unattractive. Uh, does cost play a role in this, in that people are more open or more likely to purchase this ugly produce if it's a discounted product? Yeah, so that's a great question. And we actually we conducted a study with uh, price discounts. Uh, so we looked at the role price discounts play in all of this. And usually unattractive produce is discounted anywhere between 30 to 50 percent. Uh, and what we actually found was that uh, retailers do not need to excessively discount unattractive produce to encourage people to purchase this produce uh, if they use our ugly label. So we found that, for example, the ugly label associated with a 20% discount was just as effective as using a 60% uh, discount uh, associated with unattractive produce. So, so the ugly label essentially uh, uh, removes this necessity to excessively discount the produce. And in fact, what we found was that uh, people, uh, if, if you offer too high a discount, so if you offer 60% discount, people actually make these negative inferences about the quality of the produce. So it's not a good idea to sell this produce at such a large discount. Right. People might think, oh, well, there's, why is it so discounted? It must not be as good as the other stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the amount of produce that is thrown away every year is uh, a lot, uh, up to 30% of crops. Uh, this is a U.S. report, uh, 66.5 million tons of edible produce. So produce, there's nothing wrong other than these these cosmetic imperfections. And the amount of land that's being used to, to grow food that is just being thrown away. Uh, do, do you think that, that with a shift in kind of how we perceive it and realize that it's still perfectly edible, we could try and change that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the, the main objectives of our research is to change people's attitudes towards unattractive produce. And um, as you mentioned, you know, it, this has huge consequences for the environment, for society. So uh, if we can correct for these negative attitudes regarding the tastiness and the healthiness of unattractive produce, which is what the ugly label effectively does, um, it basically um, it can it can really help encourage people to purchase unattractive produce and um and for the long term, it will be, it'll be great for the environment and for society. Uh, your research cites a 2014 uh, supermarket. In 2014, a supermarket, a French supermarket, uh, got headlines. There were a lot of news stories about this when they started calling the produce uh, that had the imperfections ugly. Uh, how do you find, or, or how did it change as far as that people were more open to that? And, and was there a shift where, whether it's people are thinking about the environment or the climate or becoming more, uh, 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 get, seeing these numbers of, uh, what we throw away was there that when did we see that shift that people were more okay with it yeah so in 2014 yeah as you mentioned intermarche a french retailer launched this campaign where they use the words ugly uh to describe unattractive produce and that garnered a lot of media attention and people became more aware of this issue uh they knew i mean people started to uh, become aware that unattractive that the rejection of unattractive produce was a was a major issue 
Uh, and so uh, subsequent um, campaigns uh, launched by retailers uh, actually used different marketing messages to encourage the purchase of unattractive produce. But those campaigns had very mixed results, right? Some of them uh, succeeded, but they didn't really last in the long term. And some of them, it's like immediately failed. So it's, it's not clear cut as to, um, so even if people are aware, it's, it's not clear as to uh, how do we effectively market this produce, uh, this unattractive produce. And that's what our research wanted to do. We wanted to provide systematic evidence uh, and uh, wanted to find a way to basically uh, effectively market these produce using ugly labeling. Did, when going into this, did, did you think that this would be the outcome or is it a surprise that calling something ugly actually leads to success when trying to sell it? Yeah, we were inspired by the, the campaign launched by Intermarché where they used the words ugly to describe unattractive produce. And so we, we kind of had an intuition that it would work. Uh, we just, uh, we wanted to test this systematically though. So we wanted to see um, if it would work or not. And there's also, uh, there's a lot of literature on like, on the, the de-biasing literature talks about um, if you point to the source of a bias, uh, it de-biases the consumer. Uh, and that's what the ugly label primarily does. So we had this intuition, uh, but we just needed to test it out in, in all these studies. And I'm not sure if you looked at this, but does it matter where people are purchasing, whether it's, say, at a farmer's market where you might be more open to thinking or, or seeing uh, imperfect or ugly uh, produce as opposed to, say, a high-end store where produce displays can sometimes be works of art, the way the colors are set up and everything is set up for people to, to see before they purchase? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so we did conduct a study at a farmer's market and we saw that people were very receptive to unattractive produce in general. Uh, but we also had, uh, we conducted lab studies with a different sample of participants, uh, more like your everyday kind of grocery, sh- you know, people go to the grocery stores and, and buy produce. And we found similar effects across all these samples, which just shows that it's very generalizable um, across you know, uh, the population. And where do you think it will go from here as far as do we keep monitoring and seeing the changing purchasing habits of people or what marketing actually gets that message across and resonates with people? Uh, yeah, I think uh, it would be great if retailers and uh, and farmers start using um, these ugly labels. So what we're, what we're saying is it's not only the ugly label that would increase the purchase of unattractive produce. We found that even labels like misshapen, for example, um, any label that emphasizes the aesthetic flaw uh, will increase the purchase of unattractive produce. So if uh, so, I mean, in the future, what I hope to find, what I hope to see is that retailers use this, this theory, use this idea that they should emphasize the aesthetic flaw, just kind of say what it is, right? It's ugly, <laughs> right? And um, and market this, and uh, yeah, hopefully we we get to see um, uh, some benefits out of this. Yeah. So, is it the word "ugly" then? Because you mentioned some other words there as well. Does "ugly" itself is it because of that word, or are there other words you can kind of interchange, and those will work also? Yeah, any any word that basically emphasizes the aesthetic flaw. So ugly is the most like obvious example, but we also found that misshapen uh, is another example of a label that works really well. It worked as well as the ugly label. So any label that really emphasizes the aesthetic flaw rather than a label that's kind of more ambiguous. So for example, imperfect is a little, a little more, it's not very clear what's imperfect. So it's a little more ambiguous. It's not emphasizing the aesthetic flaw to the, um, 
to the extent that ugly labeling does. So it was less effective than ugly labeling. So any label that emphasizes the aesthetic flaw should be effective. All right. Interesting research. We'll leave it there. Siddhanth Mukherjee, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Joe.